Here at Screaming Eye Press, we are very serious about censorship, and that is why we have put together horrible little stories, stories they don't want you to read, a collection of horror and dark fantasy stories by Joe Lansdale, G.L. Razor, Elizabeth Massey, Jack Dan, Richard Christian Matheson, G. Wayne Miller, Ray Garten, and more. All proceeds will be donated to the anti-censorship foundation, thefire.org. Look, if you don't like this commercial, just shut it off, for fuck's sake. Hey, Billy, why do you look so down? Aw, Dad, I got a computer, a PlayStation, and a barn full of iguanas, and I'm still bored. (sighs) Gee, Billy, when I was your age, I would read lots of stories in pulp magazines. Oh, with stories of weird adventure and fantasy, horror, satire, and lots of action. Wow, that sounds great, Dad. Yeah, I sure wish there was something like that right now. <laughs> there is, Daddy-O. Who are you? I'm Dr. Mary Von Roxbrocket, host of the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour. And now there's... Twisted Pulp Magazine! (laughs) What's that, Doctor? Why, it is a return to greatness! Available on all your digital devices! That is what it is! Look! Whoa! Dad, this looks awesome! Exciting and, dare I say it, very unwholesome! You definitely have that right, my good man! (laughs) Thanks, Dr. Mary! My pleasure, Billy! And just between you and me... I am not sure that this man is really your father. Bye. Dad? Uh, just read your Twisted Pulp magazine, Billy. Twisted Pulp magazine. Available in dark alleyways behind meth labs everywhere. Or at Amazon.com or ScreamingEyePress.com. That is S-C-R-E-A-M-I-N-G-E-Y-E-P-R-E-S-S.com. <laughs> When the Cat's Away by John Alfred Taylor Read by Nancy Bueller Jean left at noon for the weekend all the way to Philadelphia for the regional convention. She made sure he had plenty of food, a casserole to heat up, cold cuts, and Weight Watchers dinners if he preferred, but for extra consolation, Payne bought himself a case of dark Lowenbrow. The heavy, lingering flavor would help fill the emptiness, and with no Friday lecture to prepare, he could make a night of it. When the cat's away. 
Not that Jean minded his drinking, but she had nagged a bit since his last cardiac examination. He kept telling her a little alcohol was good for the heart, and she kept agreeing, a little pain, a little. Time for supper, he reminded himself as the taffy-colored foam of his third bottle spilled over the rim of the mug. He sponged off the stainless steel drain board and opened the refrigerator. Not the casserole. Tuna and noodles was tuna and noodles, even tarted up with capers and basil. Not the expensive TV dinners. Not the Braunschweiger, salami, pastrami, pressed ham. Certainly not pickle loaf. Payne wanted something, old world, something that went with the dark beer. Down there was a half a loaf of pumpernickel, and in the door rack was a bottle of ready-made borscht. He put some into a saucepan to heat and made himself a cream cheese and pumpernickel sandwich. When the borscht was hot, he poured it into his soup dish without bothering with a ladle, but it tasted too sweet. What did Jean add? Extra salt was no help, and finally he tipped the stuff down the drain. The sandwich would be enough. Pain was at loose ends. He'd been putting off all sorts of things till this weekend, but the November twilight leaned in against the window, blind violet-gray. With just the kitchen light on, Payne felt like a bug in a bottle, except the bottle was made of shadows, had no fixed surfaces. There was always the article for Labrys. If only he'd refused when Stern asked him to review Bromus's book. Stern thought Agrionia was a breakthrough. Payne considered it pretentious nonsense, or worse. Bromus's chapter on the eating of the god hinted at personal participation. Much more of this, and classical studies would have its own Carlos Casaniera. But Payne didn't feel like writing, nor reading either. Maybe there was something on television. He'd barely glanced at the schedule in the morning paper. Game shows, reruns of MASH, Hogan's Heroes, The Rockford Files. Movies long forgotten, best forgotten. But one of the New York channels had a title Payne thought he recognized. She-Demon. Had the distributors considered demonist too polysyllabic for their audience? It couldn't be as difficult as the film itself if Payne's guess was correct. Yes, it had to be Karpowitz's last, judging from the thumbnail synopsis. He couldn't remember the original Polish title, though the film was almost legendary. Karpowitz had killed himself during the final edit. Later, something unpleasant had happened to the female lead, and the picture had been all but abandoned by the distributors. Before anyone noticed, it had been in and out of the drive-ins as second feature to an American exploitation film. Midnight, which meant being up till two or three, even with no Friday classes, he'd better lay off the beer a while. Payne went back to the kitchen, rinsed and refilled the percolator, plugged it in. What to do till midnight? Might as well work on the review after all. When the coffee was ready, Payne took an oversized cup with his initials down to the basement study. It was always disillusioning to reread a first draft, but these halting paragraphs. Not that he was wrong. Bromus was pernicious, twisting what documentation existed, disregarding any evidence that clashed with his thesis. It was true that Agrionia meant provocative to savagery, and that the festival had been celebrated with great savagery. Plutarch himself had testified that the priest of Dionysus had pursued the women devotees with a sword, killing those he caught. Still, the brutality of the act was no proof of Bromus's contention, that it was ritual repayment for an equally savage ritual the night before, when the women had supposedly drawn lots and chosen one of their sons for victim, and there was the tale of the daughters of Minyas, who, maddened by the god, had cast lots for which of their sons to kill. But that was myth, not evidence. Bromus advanced his hypothesis of a secret nocturnal sacrifice, then argued as if this were fact. 
His assertion that such an atrocity had been practiced in classical times was equally unsupported. Mere hypothesizing. His hints that a similar rite continued today were just vulgar grandstanding. Or would it be better to say, cast in a dazing? That was good. Cast in a dazing. Maybe he could use that. Though human as well as animal sacrifice must have been involved before the cult was domesticated. He'd go along with Bromas there. Domesticated. A word counter to the nature of Dionysus, as testified by his other names, epithets like Roaring, Liberator, Render of Men, Wild Hunter. Often the god was seen as a beast of prey with the shape of a panther or a lynx. Bromus's book was all nonsense, pretentious theorizing, half-baked history of religion with a hint of personal experience, anthropological science fiction. The weirdest thing about it was the personal inscription to Stern on the end paper, May your reviewer accept this to his good health. Now what had he meant by that, other than to mystify and impress? Bromus needed taking down a peg or two, and Payne was just the man to do it. He had the title already, Castanetizing the Classics. It was ten minutes to midnight when Payne looked at his watch again, and for a moment he felt like remaining at the typewriter. But the movie was the reason he'd stayed up so late. Payne opened another beer before he went in to switch on the set with the sound down. Credits for the last program were followed by a girl swirling her hair and describing the marvels of a shampoo in dumb show, then three more commercials and a station break. He turned up the sound as the film came on. Long blonde hair was shifting and rising behind the absurd English title. It took Payne a moment to see the hair as floating, partially submerged. Hoping to catch hints of the history of the film, he watched the credits closely and discovered the original title he'd been trying to remember, Ursalka. The Polish word was very like the Russian, both meaning a fatally seductive naiad. Payne was fascinated from the first. Despite the clumsy dubbing, the folk songs of the soundtrack were evocative, and he didn't know enough to fault Karpowicz's reconstruction of pagan Slavic ritual. Nobody did, he suspected. The great sacrificial procession to the lake was brilliantly handled. Even on the small screen, the beast-masked participants seemed more like remembered nightmare than actors in a film. For all the green leaves and sunlight, Payne found himself most reminded of the scene in Alexander Nevsky, where grotesquely helmeted Teutonic knights prayed before battle. When the chosen maiden turned at the water's edge and begged for mercy from the masked figures, and the camera closed in on the eyes of cat and badger and wolf and hawk and bull, the moment was painfully intense, even before the antlered mask that hid her lover turned blankly away. Then the masked shapes crowded down and around. When they stood upright again, there was a white-draped figure drifting among its garlands, a pagan Ophelia. That was it, Payne remembered. That was what had happened to the female lead. She had drowned. In spite of more dark beer and the way the commercial breaks chopped the film into formless segments, Payne stayed awake till the end, watching as the drowned maiden came back as a rusalka, a destroying siren in the moonlight. As each of her murderers succumbed, the camera cut back to his mask hanging on its peg, her ex-lover's roebuck visage, the wolf, the hawk, the bull, the badger, the cat. Payne turned the set off and went up to bed. Yet after the light was out, animal snouts and eyes continued to thrust themselves forward in hypnagogic imagery. Although he opened his eyes to the dark in hopes of driving them away, the beast faces came back, massing and crowding. Lions, lynxes, tigers and leopards laughing, snarling. He woke late with blocked sinuses and a foul taste in his mouth, his stomach sour. What had he been doing last night other than drinking too much beer? 
Oh, yes, the movie, Payne remembered, the movie with all the animals. That was the trouble with no Friday classes to teach. Thursday night you drank like it was Friday. There was one last antacid in the bathroom, and Payne forced himself to wait till it was fully dissolved before downing it. The sound of its fizzing mingled with the drizzle outside. Thank God there was plenty of orange juice in the refrigerator. If only he'd had the sense to drink some before he'd gone to bed last night. All he wanted was a soft-boiled egg. Afterward, Payne read the headlines. A three-car crash on I-79. The marionette show of politics. Anne Landers advising a wife whose husband wore a black lace garter belt. What was that line from Robertson Jeffers? All will be worse confounded soon. Next door, the haystack-colored Tom was yowling to be let in. Toward eleven, the drizzle stopped. The backyard swam in the mist. Sparse orange leaves on the girders of the pin oak saffron green grass between bruises of unraked leaves. What to do with himself? Go on with the review, he decided, after he'd had a hair of the dog with his pastrami and cucumber sandwich. A promise was a promise, especially to Stern. Payne stopped on the basement stairs. What was that smell? It made him think of the zoo, of the big cats. He sniffed again. The odor was gone, or had it ever been? Blocked sinuses made the nose untrustworthy. When Payne turned on the desk lamp, he noticed that he'd left Brumus's book opened at the end papers. The inscription was still a puzzler. May your reviewer accept this to his good health. Crazy. No point in thinking about it. He pulled the sheet and the typewriter free to read his last few sentences. They didn't make much sense. Good thing he'd quit when he had. Payne sat down, inserted a fresh sheet, started the paragraph again, eager to show up Brumus for the charlatan he was. Writing as if Dionysus existed, it was still worshipped. The present tense was proper in the 5th century BC, but in the 20th century? Payne struck the keys with renewed vigor, determined that reason would prevail. Professor Bromus even falls back on the long-outdated thesis that the Bacchae demonstrates Euripides' deathbed conversion to the Dionysian cult, insisting that the jealous god's victory at the end of the play childish and immoral though it is, proves that Euripides ended believing in the Olympian system. This is not only nonsense, but selective misreading of the text. Hippolytus ends with the protagonist destroyed by the rival claims of Artemis and Aphrodite, but no one claims that Euripides believes in these divine personages. The reader accepts them as representations of human instinctive drives, rival passions, and so it is with the tragedian's Dionysus. Payne looked up. What was that tapping? A bare finger of wisteria at the ground-level window was all. Weak as the late sunlight was, the walls crawled with blue vines of afterimage. Time for a beer. Payne saw it the moment he came back down, stopping so suddenly that his beer slopped on the rag rug by the desk. Bromus's book was open to the inscribed flyleaf again. Silly to let it shake him. He'd merely forgotten looking at the inscription one more time. But his next paragraph came out haltingly. The momentum of his argument was gone. Time to quit for a while. Before he went upstairs, Payne closed Bromus's book and set his brass frog paperweight on it. This time, he'd make sure. On his next trip to the refrigerator, he was surprised to see how little beer was left. That whole shelf had been stacked full. But now there were only one, two, three. He counted them twice, only seven left. And it was Friday afternoon. He needed another case to last the weekend. Why not get it now, rather than have to rush tomorrow? The sky had turned overcast. 
The sodium vapor lamps were already on in the shopping center lot, although there was still daylight enough to make their fierce pinks look small and lost. It was hard to think of going home to an empty house, even with the new case of dark in his trunk, and harder to think of heating something up. Payne drove to McDonald's, wolfed down a Big Mac and two orders of fries under the fluorescent lights. An hour later, he was still belching, though the Lowenbrow helped some. Time to get back to work. There was something at the foot of the basement stairs. The brass frog paperweight. Payne stared numbly for a moment before turning toward the desk, already knowing what he would see. Yes. Again, Bromus's book was open to the inscribed flyleaf. Saturday was bright and sunny, and Payne felt fine except for his stomach. There were no antacids in the bathroom. He remembered using the last yesterday morning. Bacon and eggs helped some, but Payne kept tasting the eggs afterward. Something else kept trying to rise to consciousness. The brass frog. Last night he'd actually thought something had moved it and opened the cover of Bromus's book. Might as well get something to settle his stomach. Too bad there was nothing to settle his mind. A dose of common sense, maybe. As long as he had to drive downtown, he might as well see if he needed anything else. Payne opened the refrigerator. Was there enough orange juice? He reached in to shake the carton, in the process tipping the wine vinegar which knocked off a bottle of Lohenbrau. He grabbed for it, but too late. Bursting on the floor, the dark beer foamed across the pale tiles. He swept up the glass, put down paper towels to soak up the wetness, scrubbed with more till the floor was no longer sticky. Even after he'd rewashed his hands, the smell lingered when he grasped the steering wheel. On the way, Payne felt a tightness in his left side, just his pyloric valve, nerves from driving with a hangover. A beer would help that when he got back. He parked in the town lot and cut through the alley to Main Street. Turning toward the drugstore, he stared, frozen. Across the street stood a huge rabbit. No, a person in a rabbit costume, holding a cardboard cylinder with a slot for contributions in the lid. Collecting for some cause or charity, he realized. Nothing to be afraid of. But just for a moment, Main Street had seemed like Thursday's movie. Why was it so hard to breathe? Up at the corner, a man-sized rooster and a lion were talking to a black man in a wide-brimmed hat. Give to the daemon of your choice. Mister. The voice was right next to him, under the darkness of the drugstore entrance, reaching for him, a leopard, round yellow eyes, staring over whiskers. Pain exploded in his left side, rising up like a dark surf. As he bent on himself, he saw what was in the leopard's hand, the white shape of cardboard, and on it, the symbol of some cause, a red valentine heart. His heart. The man in the leopard suit was asking for his heart. Darkness had pain in its grip, was squeezing. Leaning over him were the leopard and the rabbit and Raggedy Ann, her mouth frozen, red spots standing out on white cheeks under red yarn hair. The leopard man was reaching down with his paw. It was more like being torn. Payne tried to scream as darkness stretched his mouth wide, forced its way in. While traveling home from a job interview in California, Mark and Allie Thurston suffer a car accident in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. Allie, are you alright? After walking for miles to the nearest convenience store, they are greeted by Hap, the store owner, who invites them to stay the night in his home. Me and my son would be glad to have you. When the two announce their plans to stay in a nearby hotel and restaurant, the Old Tawan Buffet, Hap does his best to dissuade them, 
but when they insist, he leaves them with a strange warning. Don't eat the calamari. When the warning goes unheeded, Mark and Allie are plunged headlong into a cosmic nightmare. Mark! Mark! What's happening to me? Giants, frogmen, time travel, and interdimensional madness. Now you die, your alley dies, your old man dies, I find your home, all of your friends die. All of which concludes in a battle against an ancient evil. You will bow before the mighty Dion Dega. Together they must find a way to preserve their lives, their sanity, and perhaps even their world. Part love story and part comedy. Perfect for fans of Ghostbusters and Cloverfield, The Old Talon Buffet by Wesley Critchfield is a deep dive into Lovecraftian horror that will keep you in suspense and make you want to come back for seconds. Great. I've woken up in the middle of a British Three Stooges routine. More like Gilbert and Sullivan, I should think. No, Monty Python's far more my speed. The Old Talon Buffet, or Don't Eat the Calamari by Wesley Critchfield. Read it now on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. Audiobook version now available for purchase on iTunes and Audible.com.